I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is the always very colorful Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy Carl's unique perspective as he uh, joins me in segments two and three on today's program. And of course, being an economic and financial radio program, I would be remiss if I didn't take some time to talk about what's going on with stocks. Two weeks ago, there are two words that would describe stocks' activities, stock bloodbath. I think that's two words. This past week, lots of volatility. I am actually recording today's program uh, with one more day of market activity left, but again, Stocks are very volatile uh, with huge price declines. Now, if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you know that I have been commenting frequently on the volatility of stocks. And I have been talking about what my long-term forecast is for the Dow to gold ratio. I've been talking about that for many years. Now, for those of you that our new listeners, or perhaps you're not familiar with what this Dow to gold ratio is, let me take just a minute and explain it. You take the price of the Dow in dollars and divide by the price of gold per ounce in dollars. Currently, that number stands at about 16. Now, at market bottoms, like in 1932, 1933, that ratio dropped to 2, Uh, In 1980, that ratio was about one. And at market peaks, uh, for example, at the tech stock peak, that number was over 40. So it's my thought and conviction that we are actually going to see that Dow to gold ratio continue to decline. Now, many of you are probably wondering, why would you use such a ratio? What does gold have to do with the price of stocks? Well, it's really fairly simple, and if you think about it, I think you'll understand why I like to use it. If you go back and take a look at what the dollar bought, say, 20 years ago, and what the dollar buys today, the dollar doesn't buy nearly what it did 20 years ago. The reason for that is that there has been price inflation or dollar devaluation. Dollar devaluation automatically makes the value of stocks go up on a nominal basis. So, for example, the Dow is a lot higher number-wise than it was 20 years ago. But when you adjust it for inflation, the move in stocks upward has not been nearly as convincing. So, by taking the value of the Dow in dollars and dividing by the price of gold per ounce in dollars, we're going back to a constant measurement. You see, an ounce of gold is the same today as it was 20 years ago or 2,000 years ago. You can make the same amount of rings or gold coins out of an ounce of gold now as you ever could. So you get a consistent measure, a consistent metric. Now, my long-term forecast for the Dow to gold ratio is two or probably more likely, in my view, one. 
Now, it may take a while to get there, but given all the artificial stimulus that's been used to prop up the stock market, I expect that we will see an ultimate bust that's going to be pretty significant. Now, let me take this segment on today's program to talk a little bit about how stocks work, because we all operate and maybe even invest under the assumption that we have free markets. Well, you want to think about what I'm going to talk about here very carefully, and I hope that for many of you listening, this serves as a wake-up call to take steps to protect your assets. And here's a quick word to the wise. No matter what your relationship is with your current broker or advisor, remember this. No one cares as much about your money as you do. Now let's go back in time a bit as we talk about this topic, and let's look back to 1988. See, in 1987, there was a flash crash in the stock market. On October 19, 1987, a day now known as Black Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 22.6%. That makes recent market activity look fairly mild. Now, needless to say, when you have a 20-plus percent decline in one day, the confidence of investors gets severely rattled and markets panic. So President Reagan in 1988 put in place a group known as the Working Group on Financial Markets. Now, in 1997, the Washington Post coined the term Plunge Protection Team to describe the group. Now, this group was created by the president's executive order. For those of you that want to verify, that's Executive Order 12631. And the group was charged with enhancing the integrity, efficiency, orderliness, excuse me, and competitiveness of our nation's financial markets and maintaining investor confidence. Now, the plunge protection team still exists. Now, let me give you a bit from a piece that was on the uh, terrific financial blog, Seeking Alpha, back about a year ago. I'm quoting, In plain English, monetary sovereign currency creation powers are being used to make the markets maintain stability. Treasury funds are made available but the Working Group on Financial Markets, or this plunge protection team, is not accountable to Congress and can act from behind closed doors. This illustrates how central banks can create money electronically without causing consumer price inflation, rather than taxing populations to pay for government budget deficits. The PPT, or the plunge protection team, is meeting at this very moment. Now, let's look at this a minute. What does this, and, and this is a quote from the article again, what does this monetary sovereign currency creation powers, what does that mean? They're using these powers to maintain stability. Well, here's what it really means. Money is and was being created to stabilize the market. If you need a stock rally, in comes the plunge protection team to save the day. Now, don't think that I am somehow making this up because you can go to CNBC 
and you can read the transcript of an interview that took place with Richard Fisher, who was a former member of the, of the Fed. And he said this, I spent 10 years as a participant in the deliberations of the Federal Open Market Committee setting monetary policy for the U.S. The purpose of zero interest rates engineered by the Fed, together with massive asset purchase of treasuries and agency securities known as quantitative easing, that, folks, is money printing, and I'm quoting again, was to create a wealth effect for the real economy by jumpstarting the bond and equity markets. Mr. Fisher continued, he said, the impact we had expected for the economy and the markets was achieved. By February of 2009, the Fed had purchased over $1 trillion in securities. With interest rates through the yield curve moving in the direction of eventually resting at the lowest levels in 239 years of history, the stock market reacted. It bottomed in the first week of March of 2009, then rose dramatically. The addition of a third round of quantitative easing, which had the Fed buying $85 billion a month of securities, juiced the markets. So what does this mean? The Fed printed a trillion dollars and dumped it into the markets. And Mr. Fisher did not mince words. He said, and I'm quoting, the Fed, quote, juiced the markets, end quote. So what does this mean? It means that you need to know what the big money is doing. That's hard to know. In the movie Wall Street, the trader Gordon Gecko said, you're either on the outside or you're on the inside. Well, that's just a movie. There is certainly some truth to that. So here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you, one, to educate yourself. We have a couple of educational events coming up where we talk about these issues. We talk about maximizing Social Security. We talk about reducing taxes on your retirement accounts. You can go to socialsecuritydinner.com to get more information. The website, again, to check out is socialsecuritydinner.com. Stay tuned. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a prolific blogger and commentator. Uh, you can read his work at market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. And, Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So, Carl, uh, a lot of crazy stuff going on in the markets here over the last week and a half. Um, is this the beginning of the end in your view? Well, I think what you have in the market is a reaction to the possibility that uh, Bernie Sanders was going to get the DNC nomination. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's actually kind of amusing in that everybody, of course, tried to pin this, vol this recent volatility on the coronavirus. And uh, that's just absolute nonsense. I mean, if you if you look at the timeline on things, uh, it rises and falls with the the fate of Bernie. And so, I mean, it, this this really shouldn't surprise. You've got twenty percent of the economy that is locked up in medical scams, robbing people blind. Uh, and and oh, by the way, all of the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing and all of the dollar devaluation that comes out of federal deficit spending is tied to that because that's Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, if you didn't have the Medicare and Medicaid issues in this country, you wouldn't have a federal deficit. We'd, we'd be running a surplus right now. Uh, you know, the, the, the deficit last year was uh, 
by the real number, not the, the fake one, uh, was about $1.2 trillion. And uh, between Medicare and Medicaid, the federal government spent $1.57 trillion. So if you took it, the federal budget would be running a small surplus. So, Carl, that comes as probably a, a shock to many listeners. Um, and I know we've talked about this on past programs, but I think it might be worth just walking down that road again because it's a topic that absolutely fascinates me. Um, I- explain exactly what you mean that, you know, we, 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 could, we could cut that much from Medicare and Medicaid and run a surplus and, and still provide health care. Well, it's it's really kind of simple when you get down to it. Uh, we we pay about five hundred percent of what we should be for healthcare, and and this is very easily demonstrated. I have here in my office multiple receipts for ordinary, uncomplicated vaginal childbirth from the nineteen sixties. Okay, which was you know when I was born it was in the nineteen sixties. Uh, Giving birth to a baby has not changed in, oh, I don't know, what, uh, a couple million years, I think, for humans. <laughs> the, w- the way you make the baby hasn't changed either. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that process is uh, is one that we, we haven't had any. <laughs> There's been no, no change in. And, and yet, um, if you take that, that number from those receipts, which, surprisingly enough, is exactly, I mean, it's the same thing. You had epiduros then, okay? So the you know the standard thing, you know, give the give the woman an epidural, and uh, you know, here's a doctor and you know, hospital, whatever. Uh, you take that that value and you escalate it by the CPI from that time to today, uh, you would end up with a cost of giving birth to a child of about a thousand dollars. Okay, there is nowhere in this country where you can do that for under eight to ten. Nowhere. And and that is uh, and yet the what actually happens has not changed a bit. The medical process hasn't changed at all. So you're being ripped off to the tune of five, six hundred percent, maybe as much as a thousand percent. And and people will point at this and say, well, but, you know, in the 1960s, they didn't have these 400 different monitors and, you know, all this other fancy stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that for routine, uncomplicated childbirth, you don't need all that stuff. (laughs) You know, the baby comes out the same way it used to. Right. So what we have done is we've taken and packed in all of this stuff that every now and then it becomes useful. And then we have, in addition to that, we've we've added nine people in the process of simply stealing money from people for every one doctor or nurse into the economic environment. So if you take a look at the employment figures that come out every month uh, for over the last 10, 15, 20 years, and it's been going on for a long time, but it, you know, I've been tracking it since the 1990s. Um, in the last 10 years, since the Great Recession, we put about 30,000 people a month, um, 300,000, 400,000 a year into healthcare in terms of new jobs. Okay. The problem is those are not doctors and nurses. 90% of those people are, not, are administrators. The only thing they do is take people's money. They never provide a single second of care to a single person throughout their entire time in the, in the employment market. And yet, these are not you know, people that are making, uh, you know, 25 grand a year. Okay. <laughs> These are all, you know, any, anywhere from, you know, 50, 60,000 to, you know, 100,000 plus in many cases. 
And, and you pay for every one of those people. Now, in any line of business where there is a free market and there is competition, those kinds of things can't happen. Because the, if, if you try to do that in your doctor's office and you're a doctor, the guy down the street is not going to do it. He is going to find a way not to do it. To have one receptionist that, you know, that, that makes sure that the appointments are scheduled, things like this. And there's going to be doctors and nurses in the place and nobody else. And he's going to destroy you because he's, he's got a cost structure that's a tenth of yours, and you're going to go out of business. Well, you know, I lived in this world when I ran my internet company. We had 100 competitors in our marketplace. If I had tried to hire, you know, we had, we had about 40 people working for me at the, at the peak. If I, if I tried to make that 400 employees, all of those 400, those other 360 employees would have loved it. But if I'd actually tried to do that, I wouldn't have survived a week. <laughs> okay, I mean, you know, I would have. The guy down the street would have killed me. So but that is just not there in the medical system. So, Carl, a couple things, I guess. One, I, I recently read um, an article that, and I, I can't remember the source, but you know, the number of physicians practicing in the United States has grown commensurate with the the increase in population, but the number of administrators has grown at I, I think it was like. Uh, 900% of the population. So it, it confirms exactly what you're saying. Um, so getting back to the, the market and, it, you know, the, the market's concerned about a, a Bernie Sanders nomination. Uh, do, do, does that just mean that the market's worried that this problem is going to get that much worse? Should we get a Bernie Sanders presidency or nomination? Well, no, the, the market, what the market's concerned about is that the, the, the margin theft, if you will, uh, not just in the medical system, but in other areas, the the ability to essentially force you to pay for things that are entirely voluntary, uh, but somebody else's benefit is going to go away, at least in that particular area. Because you know, one of Bernie's big things is he's uh, you know you're going to have socialized medicine. There's there's you know the Medicare for all, whatever have you. Biden, of course, is you know is not in that camp. He's the only one, in fact, of the major uh, people trying to get the nomination that isn't. Um, other than than Bloomberg, who has a zero chance. I mean, he got six delegates. Um, you know, it's Super Tuesday. He's he's going absolutely nowhere. But uh, other than blowing five hundred million dollars, which I mean, you know, that's that's a boost to the economy, right? <laughs> yeah. you know, hey, spending money, spending money. But uh, some political consultants did very well. <laughs> oh, they, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, that's five hundred million dollars that somebody gets to go spend on new cars and you know, and, and uh, you know, nice nights out in a restaurant, whatever have you. But in terms of actual impact on the in the uh, you know the political and economic system, at zero. The the bigger issue though is that what you have is is a a budding revolt against an inevitable act that's going to happen. Because if we do not stop this, by 2024, the federal government is going to try to spend well north of $2 trillion a year between Medicare and Medicaid, and they can't collect that in taxes. You take that plus defense, plus interest, and that is going to exceed tax receipts. And at the point that that happens, then you can forget about the treasury market being money good the Federal Reserve will try to absorb that because that's historically what they've done, right? I mean, they've always come in and tried to protect the the, the Treasury and the, and the Congress from the, the costs of their stupidity. Um, and for those people who think that, you know, the Fed is independent, well, you're crazy. They're not. Um, after 2008, 
when you know Paulson with his bazooka and and uh, nonsense that went on with TARP and all of this. Um, let's face it, the Federal Reserve could have turned around and said, "You made this mess. You essentially allowed the banks to steal money from people by printing up fraudulent debt securities from people that had no money, but were you know you're giving it to them to buy million dollar houses." Uh, you can stew on that. Have a nice day. And oh, by the way, if the federal government tries to to print its way out of this with deficit spending, we're not going to support that either. Okay, and and that would have cleaned out the mess. Instead, what the Fed did was essentially uh, legitimate everything that Congress did. And now you've got the same thing. You've got they you know they they, they commit an emergency rate cut, and shortly after that, uh, you know, here comes the calls for fiscal stimulus. Because, you know, that's that's just the way it is. Never mind the fact that the market has already said that that this is a load of BS because the 10 year Treasury is now trading below the Fed funds rate. So (laughs) when was the last time that's ever happened? Right. I mean, that's, you know, essentially what the what the market is is saying to to Jerome Powell at this point is you do this or we're going to have a temper tantrum. So and that's that's where it is. Let, let me let me jump in. We've got about uh, three minutes left in this segment, but you know, if, if you've got a bubble, uh, maybe the Sanders concern or the coronavirus is the pin that pops the bubble. But uh, certainly, when you look at the valuations of stocks, when you look at some of the uh, share buybacks that some uh, you know big companies have been doing, um, aren't we due for a correction anyway? And maybe it's just the Bernie Sanders nomination fear or the coronavirus that that might be that proverbial pin that that, that pops the bubble. Oh, absolutely. But you know, but realize that what what created the bubble? Okay, uh, the crazy distortion. Between and it was a collusive act between the federal government and the Federal Reserve, because the federal government by itself, if it has to, if, if it has to go out and sell treasuries into the public markets, there is a check and balance on this. Because if 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 you spend crazy amounts of money in deficit, uh, the the obvious question somebody buying a treasury, you know, bill or bond or whatever have you has is, well, you're going to have to collect taxes in order to pay my coupon and ultimately pay me back. Um, what happens if you crash the economy by doing this? Because it, all there is is government spending. Okay, Go- government distributes things, but doesn't actually produce things. You can print all the money you want, but you can't print cars. You can't print television sets. You can't. You can't. You can't print houses. You can't print things. And so, when you get down to it, that's the problem. But if you have a central bank. That that and remember, the Federal Reserve's clients, their customers, are the banks. So if you created a perverse, fraudulent edifice in the financial system and in the Congress, and the people of this country do not rise up and demand that it stop, under pain of whatever they have to do to make it stop, because they think, oh, we'll get something out of it, then ultimately you're going to end up with a financial asset bubble, and that's what we have. Well, our guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. The website is market-ticker.org. Don't go away because Carl will be joining me on the next segment of today's program as well, and we will be back right after these words. 
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and I have the pleasure of chatting once again today with uh, returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a prolific commentator and blogger. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. Uh, the website, again, is market-ticker.org. And, uh, Carl, we, we closed the last segment. We were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, this that this bubble that that we both agree that that, that we are in um, is caused by has been caused by you know the Fed's policy which has really inflated the the value of of financial assets you know and there's this whole uh, there's this whole notion uh, we, we talked about Bernie Sanders nomination uh, potential nomination in the first segment one of his advisors Stephanie Kelton uh, is a proponent of modern monetary theory. In fact, I noticed she's got a book coming out in June called The, the Deficit Myth. Um, and uh, obviously the book's not out yet, but the premise is she says stadiums don't run out of points, so governments don't run out of money. You can print as much as you want, and if there's too much, you just tax it back out of the system. What would you say about someone who's actually advocating that policy with a straight face? Uh, they ought to hang her. <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far, but <laughs> well, I, can, can I go uh, find some wood and uh, some nails and, and a piece of rope? Um, I, you know, look, every every attempt to do that throughout history, every single one, has ended in a currency collapse and the destruction of the government and the social system behind it. So people say, well, you know, you're you're good lord, you're being extreme, saying someone ought to be hung for this kind of thing, right? And, and my answer is, I'd rather hang her now than have 100 million Americans die. All right, if if you could have gone and taken out Hitler before he, you know, he played Kristallnacht and you know, and ultimately wound up, you know, taking all the Jews and putting them in gas chambers, you probably would have done it, right? If you knew he was going to do that in advance. Uh, so, the, really, this this kind of thing keeps coming up, and the reason it comes up is that people don't want to face in the political sphere. The fact that there is the government's as their primary function is is to provide a check and balance on crazy acts of people who have no regard for anything but themselves. I mean, let's face it. Why, why do you have a government? Because if somebody decides to be an insane murderer or a child molester or whatever, you'd like to have somewhere to lock them up. Right. <laughs> you give them a trial and then you throw them in prison. And and the reason you have a government is because you have that. You, you'd like to have a road to drive on, and somehow you have to figure out how to apportion the cost of that road among the people who use it. And so these you know these things are that's why we have governments, right? When it gets to the point that you start trying to declare positive rights instead of negative ones, I have the right to a house. I have the right which which somebody has to build, okay. I have the right to health care. Well, a doctor has to give me health care. Right? A person has to do that. Um, I have the right to a cell phone. Well, somebody had to make it. Somebody has to put the towers up and generate the electricity to run the transmitters. As soon as you go there, you're out of the realm of what government is supposed to be doing and into the realm of stealing. And at some point, how do you steal? Well, people say no, and then the guns come out. So we're really just arguing about when the guns come out and who's using them. Well, Carl, when you look at the numbers, and let, let me just uh, and I just put a piece together on this, and you can uh, you can jump in or, or provide a different perspective nece if necessary. But when you add up the national debt, the uh, 
underfunding of, of Social Security, the underfunding of Medicare, just those three programs, you come up with approaching $150 trillion. And if you confiscate 100% of household wealth, forget taxing just the billionaires, but if you tax 100% of household wealth, um, you come up with less than that. So, I mean, you can't really fix these problems by raising taxes, which leaves a couple options. One, you have draconian spending cuts, or two, uh, you follow this modern monetary theory and just print your way out of it. So but, how does it you end? Print your, you can't print your way out of it. You can't print the health care. <laughs> okay. Right. Remember, the, the, think about this. All right. So first off, you've, you've done what many other people have done. Social Security is actually not bankrupt. Okay. And, and won't be. Social Security is currently running a relatively small cash deficit and was built to accumulate treasury certificates during the time that it was running a surplus for this exact reason, because the people who designed the system knew that there would be baby booms and baby busts. And so they designed the system to have that buffer in there. Medicare is a different story entirely. Medicare is currently running an 80% cash deficit. <laughs> okay, There is no way to fix that with tax policy. It's impossible. But that's where the real problem is, because you can't solve that through tax policy, but you also can't solve it by printing money. And this is years ago, I did a, a segment with uh, with Lauren Lister when she used to be on, on RT. And one of the modern monetary theory proponents was against was on the other side of the table. We, we did, you know, we did the, the two up debate. Right. And he goes on and on and on about this and how the government can do this and they can just print the money and this and that and the other thing. And on camera, I took a $20 bill out of my wallet, tore it in half and said, look, I got 40 bucks. <laughs> okay. And, and there was just stunned silence because everybody instantly realized, oh, no, no, you don't. Yeah, you got 40 bucks. But guess what? The, that pill that used to cost 20 now costs 40 because I, 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 you double the number of chips. Well, the price of everything doubles instantly as soon as you do that. And so the, the problem with trying to do this is that it is inherently a fraud. You cannot, through, through any kind of monetary manipulation, you can't make goods and services appear out of thin air. And yet that's what you're claiming you're doing, is that you can pay for it by increasing the number of dollars. No, you can't. Well, you have to increase the amount of stuff. But you can't do that with monetary policy. And, and Carl, I think we're essentially kind of saying the same thing. I guess my point was that what, what are the politicians going to do? Do you, do you see anybody standing up saying, look, um, we need to get health care costs under control because the trajectory is not sustainable. Medicare is running, as you said, an 80% deficit. Or I guess, I guess my point is uh, that's probably what they're going to try to do, even though it can't be successful. Well, yeah, the, the, the problem was saying, okay, enough of the monopolists. Okay. Uh, it's been illegal for more than 100 years. It's a felony. It's not just civilly illegal. It's a criminal felony. It's 10 years in a slam slam for even attempting to monopolize or restrain trade. Healthcare does not have an exemption to this law. The healthcare industry and the pharmaceutical industry have gone to the, all the way to the Supreme Court twice trying to claim they were exempt. They lost both times. This happened in the late 1970s and early 1980s. They are not exempt. The government will not arrest and prosecute people. So, yes, they probably will try to do this. The consequence of doing it, however, is going to be the collapse of America. And it's coming. And by the way, the crossover point is in 2024. 
And that assumes that this coronavirus thing doesn't immediately overload the hospital system, which it might. So ultimately, um, and, and we're seeing uh, too, Carl, if, I mean, if you look around the world, uh, the U.S. dollar is already falling out of favor. I mean, uh, you know, the central banks around the world have been net sellers of, of U.S. treasuries, and the Fed, of course, is picking up the slack. So aren't we already starting down the slippery slope? Well, I don't know. Uh, you, you tell me. The dollar index uh, is, you know, is, is trading within a few pips of all-time highs. It's at, you know, 97-ish and change. Um, it, it's it, in terms of international trade uh, and and the standing on the world stage, and not so much. The, it, everybody seems to think that this is going to come from the outside and that you can hide in precious metals or something like that. That's not how these kinds of things work. These sorts of collapses tend not to, to originate that way, especially not when you have a government that issues its own currency. Where they tend to come from is from internal pressures, because if, if I do this modern monetary theory type of thing, and, and this has already been going on, right? I mean, what do you think QE was? Right, <laughs> Same yeah, thing, no, right? exactly, just exactly. Small, yeah, just a smaller scale, right? But how much has your health insurance gone up in the last 10 years? It's tripled. All right. How much? How, look at look at the cost of new cars. They're they nearly doubled. Um, we, you know, it was. If you take a look at the CPI, supposedly you should be able to buy a new half ton base pickup truck for about fourteen thousand dollars. Well, there isn't one on the market for less than half than double that. Right. All right. Exactly. From any manufacturer. So the thing is, is that you can do this sort of thing, but the things that people need to buy become so expensive that they can't pay for them anymore. And then when you're offshoring all of the lower skilled labor, what you end up with is situations like you have in California, where you've got all these people that end up displaced out of their homes. They end up homeless. A high percentage of them turn to drugs or alcohol because what else are they going to do? Right? I mean, when you're in despair, uh, well, self-medication is a rather popular thing throughout the ages. It hasn't, that's not, hasn't changed and isn't going to. And so now you just, now, now you make the problem even worse. And this is how you descend into a third world country. And, and Kyle, isn't that really, I mean, go, go, we'll finish here where we started. Isn't that really where a lot of the, you know, the far left progressive movement is coming from? That I mean, you know, I think um, uh, Gerald Salente was on the program and he said when people have nothing left to lose, they lose it. And essentially that's where this political movement is coming from, right? Oh, absolutely. But the thing is, is that you just look at where the biggest problems in this area are coming from. They're all from the leftist hellholes. I mean, it's, you know, it's just the way it is. I mean, I, you can't argue with the facts. There, you go into Chicago and you say, oh, that's wonderful. Well, you know, I lived there for 13 years. The last time I drove through that town, I saw tent cities by the highway. I'd never seen anything like that when I lived there. Yeah, well, our guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. That's a, uh, an odd note to leave it on, but that's uh, the clock says we're out of time here. So, Carl, thanks for joining us today. I'd uh, love to have you back down the road. always appreciate your perspective. Anytime. Uh, Carl's website, once again, if you're just joining us, is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out, and we will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen, and thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining us on today's program. Carl's a very colorful guy, and always a pleasure to have him on the program to get his perspective. Now, I've been talking today about what's going on with stocks. The big declines, the volatility, what's going on? Well, I ended the first segment by giving you a quote 
from Richard Fisher. Uh, and this was from an interview that he did back in 2016 after he had retired from the Federal Open Market Committee. Now, I'm going to give you, just in case you're just joining us, just a bit from this particular interview. He said that he spent 10 years as a participant at the Fed. His job was to help set monetary policy for the United States. He said the purpose of zero interest rates engineered by the Fed, together with this quantitative easing, which is money printing, was to create a wealth effect for the real economy. He said by February of 2009, the Fed had purchased over $1 trillion in securities. And where do they get the money to buy those securities? They create it. He said with interest rates through the yield curve moving in the direction of eventually resting at the lowest levels in 239 years of history. Think about this. Lowest levels in 239 years of history. He said the stock market reacted. It bottomed the first week of March in 2009, then rose dramatically for the next five years. The addition of a third round of quantitative easing or money printing, if you will, had the Fed buying $85 billion per month of securities to ultimately expand its balance sheet to over $4.5 trillion, and it juiced the markets. Those are not my words. Those are Mr. Fisher's words. So what's the translation here? Well, the Fed printed a trillion dollars and dumped it into the financial markets. So quietly... And unbeknownst to the average IRA or 401k investor, the Fed manipulates markets. Stock markets and bond markets are being artificially influenced to help achieve, to attempt to achieve rather, a desired outcome. So if that's the case, what's going on in the markets now? Is the coronavirus to blame? Well, you just heard from Carl Denninger who said he thinks it's more politically related. Well, I think regardless of what is to blame, the market fundamentals have been screaming correction for a long time, as I've been discussing here. In fact, I may even sound a bit like the boy who cried wolf, for those of you that remember that story. Now, significant market corrections, and I'm not suggesting that we are going to see a significant correction now, but again, as I mentioned in the first segment, I think we are going to see a significant correct correction at some point here in the near future. So these corrections typically start when stocks are overvalued and margin debt levels are high, and then a black swan event occurs and the market correction begins. Now that's how I view the current situation, and I am not attempting to trivialize or minimize the coronavirus situation. I'm only looking at it from the perspective of the massive market corrections that we have been seeing. Now, if you go back and look at the most common ways to value stocks, one of the most common ways is to use a price-to-earnings ratio. This is a really simple ratio. It's calculated by taking the price of the stock and dividing, by, divided by, dividing it by the earnings of the stock. So the higher the number, the more overvalued stocks are. So price-earnings ratio simply means that if a stock is selling for $10 a share and its earnings per share would be $1 per share, we've got a price-earnings ratio of 10. Now, 
if you go back and take a look at, historically speaking, where price-to-earnings ratios are presently, if you take a 10-year smooth ratio, in fact, Schiller has a really good 10-year smooth ratio, the current price-to-earnings ratio is higher than it was in 1929. So right now, based on this commonly used ratio, stocks are more overvalued than in 1929. In fact, they are more overvalued than at any time in history other than one time. And that was prior to the tech stock bubble collapsing. Now, I don't mean to muddy the water up here a bit, but I almost need to because there's something else going on behind the scenes that is contributing, I believe, to what we're seeing happening now in the stock market. I have discussed here on the program that many publicly traded companies have been buying back shares of their own stock. Now, this was once an illegal practice. Why? Because it artificially increases earnings per share. See, earnings per share go up not because the company is making more money and has higher profits. Higher earnings per share is accomplished by having fewer shares outstanding. So this tends to skew P.E. ratios and earnings per share to be more favorable. Now, margin debt is also high. This is another factor. Margin debt is debt that an investor acquires to buy securities and, again, usually stocks. Now, if you take a look at the corrections of 2000 and 2007, to be more accurate, I should say the stock market corrections that began in 2000 and 2007. Margin debt contracted, and then three to six, three to seven months later, the stock market correction began. And that's because another way that the stock market gets fuel is investors borrowing money to buy stocks. It gives them more purchasing power and creates more demand. Well, it shouldn't be surprising that margin debt has now begun to contract. So what does all this mean? What's next? Well, I expect the plunge protection team that I talked about in the first segment and the Federal Reserve to pull out all the stops. In fact, the Fed cut rates 50 basis points. I would not be surprised that by the election, we see negative interest rates here in the United States. Now, reality, though, is still reality. Stocks have long been artificially manipulated. Basic laws of economics cannot be changed. Basic laws of economics tell us that this cannot go on forever. So can the Fed and the plunge protection team squeeze some more juice out of this market? Perhaps, but given recent market activity, it certainly looks like it may be coming less likely. So the question is, how does all this affect you? And more importantly, what should you do? Well, here's my advice as I close today's program. Make sure you're protected, at least on some of your investments, especially those that you might need for retirement. Given market action of late, I think there's a strong possibility this correction will continue long-term, although I do expect some intermittent rallies. I would view any rally at this point as a bear trap. So for that reason, you might want to think long and hard about 
taking the traditional broker and, invest, and advisor advice about staying in the market for the long haul. At this point, taking some of your assets off the table might make sense. We have resources available at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Feel free to visit there and take advantage of all the free resources. We also have educational events. You can learn about our upcoming educational events by visiting our website, socialsecuritydinner.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week. 